Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Velkommen til sesong 2 av podcasten De som bygger det nye Norge Produsert av Oslo Business Forum I samarbeid med Silvia Ceres Hej og velkommen til dagens episode av De som bygger det nye Norge Podcastserien til Oslo Business Forum og Silvia Ceres Today's episode is going to be in English Because we have a lovely English lady here today, Ellie Dobson, a chief data scientist from Arundo and a fellow Oxonian. <laughs> Ellie, welcome. Thank you. Ellie, you came to Norway, um, what, two years ago? I came in uh, May last year. In May last year. I have a feeling I've known you for longer, I'm sorry. <laughs> and uh, um, it will be interesting to hear your perspectives on um, working and living in Norway as a top international talent. But, um, and we'll talk a lot about big data and we'll probably have this episode slightly more technical than some of the others, simply because we get to dig in, in the tech of big data. Before we do that though, Ellie, could you please say a little bit about yourself? Of course. So I moved, as we said, to Norway in May of last year. Prior to moving to Norway and joining Arundo, I worked for a couple of tech companies, American tech companies, um, while living in London, um, where I was working on, um, I spent a lot of time thinking about how to generate insights from data. Uh, more specifically, I spent a lot of time thinking about sensor data and the Internet of Things and how we can use that data to make companies more prosperous. Um, before that, I was also working with data, but in a very different setting. So I worked at CERN, which is a particle physics laboratory based in Switzerland, where I was part of a team that was looking through very, very large amounts of data to find a particular particle called the Higgs boson. Um, and I was there for uh, about seven years. Um, was that your 
PhD? My PhD was actually written on simulation of the Higgs boson. Um, after I finished my PhD, I worked as a postdoc where I was working on uh, real data. So I was part of the team when the discovery was made, along with another 2,000 people. But um, wait, wait, so you are actually a physicist originally? Yes, yes I was, uh, so I was trained as a physicist. I did my PhD in particle physics. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. What college was it? By uh, so I went to New College, Oxford, and after that for my PhD, I was at Lineker College ah. in Oxford. Very nice. So um, um, I would love to hear more about how um, particle physics works with um, Arundo data sets. <laughs> but before that, can you please say a few words about Arundo as well? Yeah. Oh, so no, by the way, why, why did you move to Norway? Um, I moved to Norway um, primarily because I got a um, very interesting job offer with Arundo, um, which was the opportunity to um, see a company almost from infancy and grow it, which is something I've not done before. Um, it was really um, a um, good thing that Arundo was based in Norway because uh, I had actually been keen to move uh, out to Norway for quite some time, basically, <laughs> basically inspired by pictures of fjords, because that's the sort of thing that floats my boat. Um, I was living in London prior to that, and um, to be perfectly honest with you, I kind of wanted to escape um, the daily grind of London and go somewhere which is a little bit more peaceful. L really rural, like Os Oslo? <laughs> <laughs> Compared to London, but also somewhere that still had the opportunity to um, grow in my career in the way that I wanted to and I don't think there's very many places on this planet that combine uh, the peace and serenity of Norway with um, the opportunities that you offer people like me in, uh, in, in work. I agree. Um, how did they find you? Uh, so they actually met me um, when I was working at my previous company. We were working with the... the they same... stole you! <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't put it that way. <laughs> but uh, we, uh, we met when we were, we were both working with the same customer at my previous job. And uh, it was a funny story, actually. So I was... They were presenting some work they'd done, and their first slide was a picture of the Norwegian fjords. And They had you at first a, slide. <laughs> in a, we were in a blizzard in Boston, and... I looked at the slide and I said to the guy presenting, I said, you, you have to get me to Norway. And I kind of meant on a consulting engagement, not on a <laughs> full-time <laughs> different job, but that's, that's how, it, how it ended up in the end. So we, talk, we keep talking about, you know, all the equality and trust and openness that, that attracts people really. But to be honest, it's still the fjords and maybe the sound. <laughs> yeah, and the fjords and the serenity. It's a... Uh, I think it's a very um, humble, uh, sorry, not humble. Um, I think it's a very... Modest. No, um, it's a very humane way to live here in Norway. Humane is good. Um, I agree on that one as well. Uh, but do, but, but you, um, um, Arundo, we've heard about them as this um, uh, very exciting big data company. Can you say what that really means? Um, so our, our motto as a company is uh, that we aim to enable smarter operations through industrial analytics. So what that means to us is we aim to help our customers uh, to get the most out of their data. Um, 
I actually wouldn't describe us as a big data company in that we're not, we don't center our company around data. What we've discovered is that our customers often want to keep their own data and for very good reasons. Um, we're kind of okay with that. We, we want to help our customers make the most out of their own data. Uh, and maybe even by sharing their data with other customers down the line. And so the way that we achieve that is through um, both services and software. Uh, so we have um, data scientists who work like consultants. They work with the customers to show them the way to get the most out of their data. Um, we also have software that will help our customers because in the way that we see it, we think our customers what we see is they're getting increasing ability within enterprises to, to, to work with data. So enterprises out there, we see this a lot in Norway, um, are very actively hiring a lot of data scientists. because well, So you have to understand um, that for many of us, this is still um, a bit of an um, <laughs> internal lingo. So, uh, you know, people think they use they get the most out of their data every time they use a computer. Mm -hmm. So what is data science? What does a data scientist actually do? So I would say what a data scientist does, um, which is different to what a lot of companies have been doing up to now, is using data to make predictions or forecasts for the future. I know that's been done for quite a long time, but it's being done um, with greater efficiency now than ever before. Um, and that's a transition for a lot of customers in, in, in that um, companies have always used data to report on what happened in the past. You know, when you do when you do business reports of um, what is the typical uptime of an oil rig, for example. But what uh, what is new is being able to say, what do we predict is going to happen in the future? And so the way that that is done by data scientists is they make learnings from previous data that's been recorded to build models that make predictions in the future. And there's less, less kind of manual analysis of Excel sheets and more modeling. Well, and you have to help us, under, help us understand what's this modeling about. Okay, so, so the modeling is now possible because the data sets are so much bigger. So if you have, um, so introduce the term machine learning. So what machine learning really is, is it's, um, algorithms that will learn from historical data. So let me give you a really simple example, right? If you wanted to train an algorithm to tell the difference between pictures of dogs and pictures of cats, and I gave you a stack of pictures of dogs, told you these are dogs and the same, this is a load of pictures of cats. What you can do is if you feed those images into an algorithm, um, the algorithm itself can start to spot differences between these two different types of pictures. And when you come to very large amounts of data, the algorithm can do that more efficiently than a human can, if the data set is large and rich enough for the algorithm to really be able to excel um, uh, on top of what a human would be able to do. So then what you can do once you've trained that algorithm is then you can feed it a new and unknown picture and ask the algorithm, what is this picture of? And the algorithm will then say, it's a dog or it's a cat and give you some associated probability of its certainty that it's one of those animals. And so basically the algorithm has learned what a dog or a cat picture looks like 
in a sense. Which... The algorithm has learned the difference between what you've told it is a dog and what is a cat. And that's kind of a little bit sometimes where the catch has comes in. The but training it's... work is very extensive. Is that what you say? The training work is based on the historical data. So one um, pitfall in machine learning is that you have to be very careful not to feed the algorithm biased data. So if you were to, for example, give the algorithm a bunch of pictures of cats and then a bun bunch of pictures of Great Danes, that algorithm is only going to be able to recognize Great Danes. It's not going to recognize a Pekingese for you. Or a poodle. Or a poodle, exactly. So as long as you give... The, the algorithm is as good as the data set. Um, so <clears throat> that's uh, one thing is you need to make sure that you have a very rich, complete and unbiased data set. And then uh, another thing to be aware of is never to underestimate the um, experience of the people of this, we call them subject matter experts within your company, you know, because somebody who knows a lot about dogs is going to be able to look at that picture, that um, data set of dogs and say, well, you've only got Great Danes in there. In your data set? In your data set, yeah. So Arundo yeah. is not looking for cats or dogs in, in general, but it's looking for, you know, possible problems in production at the Statoil oil rig. Or what, you know, and, and the data you get is data from all the sensors on the platform or, or what, what's the typical use case? So Arundo predominantly deals in um, sensor data, so Internet of Things data. That could be um, supplemented by other sorts of data sets. So what kind of data is in these sensors, by the way? Um, it's points in time for a particular sensor. So one sensor, say a pressure sensor, will give you a reading of what is the pressure on this particular component every second. So it's time series data. Um, we also look at other sorts of data sets to supplement the model, because as I said, you want the data set to be as rich and varied as possible. So you get the biggest picture of what's going on, again, to avoid feeding the algorithm only with Great Danes. So we, uh, we also look at maintenance logs. We look at weather data. We do quite a lot of work in shipping where we use AIS data. Meaning? Sorry? Meaning? AI, uh, position data, mm. um, where, the sh where ships are at particular points in time, so those are usually public data sets. So basically, sometimes you look for patterns that are maybe, maybe you don't even know what the question is, or do you always have to know what, you're, you know, what connection are you trying to find? Um, so uh, in Arundo, the way we see it is the best way to make sure you make the most best possible use of your data is to start from a well-known question and not from the data. So a pitfall that I've seen many companies fall into is to start by trying to build a data lake. So what they do is they go away, and this is a very time-consuming and expensive endeavor. They take all of a company's data that they can find and they put it into the same environment. And that's the first thing they do. While that is something that you definitely should be doing, um, in Arundo we believe a better way to do it is to start with a question and say, what question do we want to answer with this data? What is going to give us most business value? And then take the data sets you need to answer that question, join them together, make insights using machine learning, and then put that model into production. Put that model in, in front of somebody who is going to be making the decisions in real time. In our case, that's often a captain on a ship or an operator of a rig. Or something like that. What kind of questions might they want to have answered? When is a certain part going to break? Or 
What's the optimal <laughs> route to Shanghai? Or It could be a lot of things. And picking the right question is kind of um, a bit of a dark art. And that's uh, something that we help with. Um, because there are a lot of different factors you need to take into play. So what is feasible from the data is something you need to consider again. If you've only got pictures of Great Danes, you're not going to build a model to recognize poodles. So what sort of questions would your data support? Um, politics is a big part, is, is which parts of an organization is supportive and ready for data science and ready for change um, and to rely or to use data science to help them drive decisions. Um, how much value are you going to generate? from the data is another thing you have to consider. But to give you the sorts of questions that we typically would look at, um, we deal a lot in predictive maintenance. So um, unplanned downtime on uh, assets and in heavy industry can be extremely expensive. Um, failures can be tricky to diagnose and um, people generally don't want to have downtime on their assets unless they have to. Sometimes they push the equipment too far and it fails and then all of a sudden you have unplanned downtime. So being able to predict when equipment is likely to fail is something we, we look at. Um, there's also a lot of analytics around being able to optimise efficiency. What is the best way to operate this particular piece of equipment to um, optimise production? Something like that. Uh, we often look at kind of traveling salesman type problems. What is the best way to route um, supplies that are needed to where they're needed? Traveling salesman was a reference to one of my favorite um, legendary algorithms. But um, it's a question about how do you find, as Ellie says, um, the optimal route through a graph. Ellie, um, you, so, you talked about Arundo, but it would help us understand um, a little bit better the whole dark art of data science or big data. Um, if, you, if you could tell us two very different things. One is you mentioned your PhD. Mm -hmm. So what does particle physics have to do with, you know, a particular particle have to do with big data? How do you find that using big data? And the other thing is you told me you did something in fashion as well. Very different areas. So um, let's start with particle physics. So, um, so if you think about a particle physics detector, so the one buried underground um, in Geneva, that is recording a huge amount of data. So effect, you have particles which are colliding into each other inside, uh, inside this detector. And if you imagine a particle colliding with another particle, um, in, in our case, it's protons. Um, if you imagine that like two cars involved in a collision, the outcome of the collision is normally what you'd expect. It's bits of cars scattered all over the road. And uh, particles are no different. You end up with protons scattered all over the detector. Um, however, what is different with particle physics is one time in, I forget the number, probably something like one time in several million you get something extraordinary which happens, which is something like a bus coming out of a collision. And that is a fundamental new particle that's been produced. Um, 
and the bus in this case is, is a Higgs boson. So you have two cars colliding, two protons colliding, and you get a bus flying out, a Higgs flying out. And the thing about Higgs is, is, is light buses, they're very heavy, <laughs> um, and they make a lot of mess when they, when they crash into the walls of the detector. Why, why are they important again? Um, Remind me. So the Higgs per se is not the important bit. The Higgs boson is like a smoking gun of uh, an underlying effect called the Higgs mechanism. Um, and what the Higgs mechanism is, is it's a, um, it's a postulation that was made by, by Peter Higgs back in the 1960s, which is a, a unification theory. It unifies um, fundamental forces into one. And what it also is, is it's a mechanism to, that generates mass for particles. So without the Higgs mechanism, of which this Higgs boson is a smoking gun, um, we wouldn't have mass. And we know we have mass because we can feel it when we're sitting on our chairs every day. So uh, uh, that's what it is. So, so then, coming back to the Higgs boson. Early. So you've got, a, you've got a bus which uh, comes flying out of this collision and it hits the wall of a detector and makes a, you know, generates a lot of energy. But the difficulty is this bus only comes along very rarely. I think at the point of the discovery of the Higgs, we had something like uh, 26 Higgses. We were taking, um, we were creating a collision every 25 nanoseconds. So for that, how long? Um, for about a year or two. And so that's a lot of uh, data to go combing through. So the question, and at least at that point, I think probably still now, that's way too much data to ever really record. Uh, so the question is, how do you find these buses? And so the way that you do it actually is to use um, uh, a lot of machine learning techniques, actually, where you tell an algorithm, this is what a Higgs should look like. Um, and this is what something that isn't a Higgs looks like. Um, a bit like dogs and cats. And you train an algorithm to... Um, effectively tell the difference. And so that algorithm is running very fast, partly on hardware and partly in a software form. And when it sees something that looks a bit like a Higgs, the algorithm says go, and all the data is dumped to disk. And then particle physicists come along later and comb through that data and um, uh, and then uh, and do a finer grained search for these kind of particles. I should know this, but I don't. Did they find one? Yes. We found uh, well done. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> Along with uh, a lot of other people who are part of the discovery. Um, so, yeah. so all unified. Uh, yeah, um, we have uh, <laughs> no, not all unified actually, but that's a that's a different story. Um, but uh, so, how does this connect to fashion? <laughs> looking well, fashion for kids or... or looking for so. Um, it's easier to explain the, the similarity to an oil rig, actually, but uh, I can try and do both. So what is similar is, number one, you're looking at large amounts of historical data to train the algorithm. Now, remember that we didn't find any Higgses at the point where we optimized the algorithm to find them, obviously, right? So we trained the algorithm, it's actually not on historical data, but on simulation data to make predictions for the future, where the prediction for the future is this is likely to be a Higgs, or this is likely not to be a Higgs. And it's, it's kind of the same if you're writing an algorithm for predictive maintenance in an oil rig, in that in, at any point in time you have an algorithm running saying this component is likely to fail, or this component is likely not to fail. 
what I was doing in fashion analytics was um, looking at previous trends um, in fashion to be able to predict what might happen in the future. Um, so fashion forecasting. So you've got an algorithm which is saying something like... So just go for black and white, no matter what. <laughs> pink fluffy harem pants are likely to come into fashion or pink fluffy harem pants are unlikely to come into fashion. So the, the common theme is that you have an algorithm... What's the data? For this fashion. L? Sorry? What's the data? <laughs> um, we were looking at what... Um, uh, what uh, retailers had on the websites. So if you have a, a web caller that's saying what is uh, what is selling out, what is not selling out. Isn't that very circular? You know, you're, you're looking at what's popular to predict what's going to be popular, or? Um, I guess that's kind of in a way what fashion is. The underlying model is <laughs> kind of circular. We're all looking at yeah. each other. Yeah. And then it's also possible to combine that with um, short-term and long-term trends that you've seen in fashion um, in the past and come up with some weighting of what is likely to, to be popular. But you, So basically what you're saying is you still have to know where the best combination of data is. You know, deciding what to gather. I mean, with all the sensors that an oil rig has mm. these days, mm. or a ship, or um, you, you, this is where you are saying that asking the right question is important because you will have to eliminate some sources or not. There are two things that are important. There's choosing the right question, which is um, what, what, do you, what do you want to know? What's important to you? So the right answer is worth nothing if you can't influence the people who are making the decisions. Um, in our world, the person making the decision is an operator of a, of a rig or a captain of a ship. In B2C, it would be somebody who is, you know, do I click on this ad or not? And if you can't influence that person, it doesn't matter whether your model has good predictability or not. And that is the single most important thing because you don't want to waste time writing an algorithm that nobody cares about. So it's important to choose the right question, which is ultimately going to generate value. So the second most important thing is what is the right data to support the assertion you're trying to make? So if you... Um, <clears throat> you hear a lot about people writing clever algorithms. Um, however, in my world, the way I see it is it's not a case of my algorithm is better than your algorithm. It's a case of my data set is, big, is bigger than your data set, particularly in asset heavy industries where the amount of data that you've harvested can be quite limited. If you're looking at something like failures, you typically don't have a lot of failures to go on. Um, so we come back to this dog cat example. It's like you have three pictures and One's of a Great Dane, one's of a Poodle, and one's of a, of a Labrador. That's kind of hard to build a good algorithm. So statistics is king in this mm -hmm. game. And those who have the access to the most rich data set are those who are going to build the best algorithm, regardless of how clever the data scientists are. So there are two things. Ask the right question and make sure you are the guys who have access to the best data set one way or another. So then I have to ask you about the value of data, because all, all these rhetorics about, you know, data is the new oil or yeah. 
Um, and, and you have companies like Facebook and Google, um, Amazon, really amassing huge amounts of mm-hmm. unique data. Yeah. Um, so how's a, how, how, how is a, a private, smaller company um, or a public company or a government to kind of build something better if these guys have so much more data? Or do they? It depends what the data is, is on. So if you take something like an oil rig, I don't think Google is going to get in the business of predictive maintenance on oil rigs anytime soon. You never know. (laughs) You never know. You never know. But um, to companies who don't have um, huge amounts of proprietary data, um, I would say there's a few things that you can do. So number one would probably be get creative about what you consider to be your data. So your data doesn't just have to be stuff that sits in a database within your organization. I mean, that's the obvious one to go for. So people often look first to CRM systems, for example. Um, You can also look at what we often like to call dark data within an organization is data that may be sitting there, but nobody's actively using because it's very hard to get to. Um, and nobody's thought that it's worth using. So um, I would say one dark data set that's really coming to the forefront in, in the industry that Arundo is in is IoT data. People weren't Internet using, of things. Yeah, so sensor data. People weren't really utilizing sensor data until very recently. It was getting stored on data historians on rigs, um, which is kind of a little bit like locking the data in a closet and hiding the key. Um what we're seeing is companies are really blasting open those historians and starting to get what's inside. Um, the third option is to start looking at public data sources. So I mentioned uh, position data for ships earlier. So that's uh, there are public data sources that you can use to aggregate, um, to sorry, supplement what you already have. And then fourth is the old chestnut of social media. So do you have people interacting with applications, for example? Um, a lot of companies, they make their own applications. Say if you're a bank and you have an application that people um, are using, or for example, loyalty cards is another one. Um, can you design those kind of experiences for customers where um, they will interact with the application and thus generate data for you? So when I, as a data scientist, look at an app- application, I don't think application, I think thing that is making data. Can you design the application to be able to harvest the sort of data that you would like? Of course, without being creepy, but uh, is there a way that you can can generate more data for yourself? So Ellie, you mentioned public data or publicly owned data. And I have heard several um, people refer to this as our hidden national resource. So they say something about our data you know, uh, or public free data sets. Mm. Well, we have a lot on our health records, digitalized by now, but also there are things about our roads and our, about weather and about our, I don't know, all kinds of maps with infrastructure data and um, stuff that, um, you know, is used for the Statistics Bureau, etc. cetera. Mm. Uh, do, do you have any, any intuition or explanation on why they might think that this kind of data is is somehow unique to Norway? Well, I can give you 
my own perspective as a newcomer to Norway and my impression of uh, how far it, along the road is Norway to digitization of public data. And I have to say, I am staggered by how... That's a positive or a negative? Uh, staggered, staggered. <laughs> staggered in a good way compared to the UK. So I, when I first realized that Norway was in a bit of a different place was when I, I phoned up to see if my... I wanted to check my car was insured. And um, so I've, I'd been in Norway a few weeks and I phoned up and um, the man on the telephone, he said, uh, um, hello, how may I help you? And I said, I'm phoning to see if my car's insured. And he said, yes, it is. And I said, I haven't told you my name. How do you know that? And he said, oh, it's all linked to your phone number. It just pops up on the screen when you when you ring. And uh, that was <laughs> quite a moment because I really can't imagine that happening in the UK. And the reason in Norway, it seems that everything is linked to your P number and to your telephone number. And that is a little bit like a data scientist's dream. Because if you think um, when I talk about joining different data sets together, and you imagine if I have a data set in my database that is my health records, and then I have another data set in a database, which is my house, everything around my house. And then I have a third, which is, you know, maybe my daughter's uh, nursery and, and that kind of thing. If you're a data scientist and you want to answer a question, usually the most value is in make, increasing the richness and the complexity of your data set. Now, how do you do that? Usually you join different data sets together. That's usually how you would make a more accurate algorithm is, is by making a more rich data set. How do you join data sets together? Well, you need some sort of common ID, right? Otherwise, you don't know what you're joining with which. And in Norway, you, you seem to have this common ID which is used for absolutely everything. And I haven't seen that. Uh, this is a fifth country I've lived in, and I've never seen that before. So I would imagine, while not having looked at Norwegian's databases, I would imagine that you've got a, a very easily cross-connectable mm. connectable data set um, regarding uh, public data Elliot, data on the public I then another question following on that um, this you said uh, a data scientist's dream but uh, also a paranoid uh, nightmare <laughs> in the sense that uh, you know when I tell my friends say in the US that uh, you can look up anybody else's income and uh, tax returns mm. there's all this openness good thing bad thing individual thing what do you think? I think it depends what you do with it. Um, and again, I think it comes down to what is the question that you're trying to answer? And it comes back down to this theme of starting from the question and not starting from the data set. So I think it would be an incredibly bad idea to turn over this data set to a bunch of people like me who have a intellectual curiosity and the keys to the database, um, I think instead... What could you do with it? I think uh, what would be better is if a Norwegian government were to say, what, can, not what can we do with the data, but what should we do? What sort of questions do we want to ask of this data? And then, you know, ask a larger, you know, ask the Norwegian people, do you want us to be doing this with your data? Um, and once you have well-defined questions that everybody agrees are good questions to be answered, then you set the data scientists loose mm. on the anonymized data 
um, which contains the information that they need to be able to build a model to answer that question and only that question. So because basically what you're saying is there is a lot of very commercializable information here mm -hmm. and it could be used or, or even political information that could be used in un unforeseen ways. I mean, I, you know, we're going back to this theme of black magic, <laughs> big data. Uh, I, I don't think we realize what kind of patterns can be seen. You know, we've heard these, 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 these scenarios, and I still don't know if they're urban myths or not, that, you know, Google can predict whether you're going to catch a flu or not, and all these epidemic predictables, and, you know, they can tell you if you're pregnant or not before you know it, because they see what you buy, and, uh, you know, people with... Um, a certain kind of cars tend to answer phones after two rings, not after three. Is, is, there, is there really valuable data there for people who are willing to you know, use it in, in weird ways? Or I think it's a case of making sure that the questions that you're asking of the data are um, well-defined before you attempt to answer them and ethical. And asking the question before you even start of, should we ask this question or should we, we not? Rather than just diving into the data and seeing what you find. Right. When it comes to uh, public sector. Um, what's ethical or not in terms of using the data is probably a huge political new area mm -hmm. as well. And we won't have time to dive into that. But I, I just want your reaction on you know the statement I've heard Toyota say, um, they said, you know, in a few years from now, we might not be selling or we might not, our main income might not be coming from selling cars. It might be coming from selling data. Realistic, not realistic. What, what do you think? I would be surprised if Toyota sold data. I think uh, Toyota probably wants to keep their own data. And that's what we're seeing increasingly at any enterprises. Companies are really waking up to the fact that data is um, a commodity and it's to be protected. And every company we talk to wants to be a data company. They want to keep their own data. I think what Toyota will probably do is they will sell applications and insights which are made on their data, um, but keep the raw data to themselves. Because to build a model, any data scientist needs access to the raw data. <laughs> Um, most data scientists can build good models. What they can't do is make up raw data. So in a way, data is king. The unique raw data. The unique raw data that nobody else has access to. Um, so I think Toyota will sell insights. And that's what we're seeing in, uh, in, in companies out there. Is, uh, they're waking up to this fact and they're starting to guard their data very closely. Now, what could happen, and something we in Arundo paying a lot of attention to is, is the potential for companies to share data amongst themselves. So if you have Toyota and another similar, if you have Toyota and Ford, for example, um, in our case, that would be if you have two oil companies. Now, I mentioned earlier, um, it's very difficult to build a good predictive maintenance model if you don't have a lot of failure data. However, say if Statoil has 10 failures of a particular type and Chevron has another 15 failures, neither of them are likely to be able to build a good model on their own, so nobody's winning. But um, 
if they join those data sets together, could they together build a better better model based on that combined data set? And there are ways and means to do that without actually sharing the data between them. So neither of them sees the other's data, but they could build a combined model which will offer more insights. And I wonder whether we'll see that in the future is um, kind of conglomerates. Joining forces, joining data. Not joining data, but um, building combined models together, which are, which are better. I wonder if we'll start to see that. Interesting way of thinking partnerships. I, I haven't thought about it. Um, you, you talk about um, um, putting models into production. Can you help us understand what that means? Yeah, I certainly can. So um, in, my, in my career, I'm ashamed to say um, that uh, I have built a large number of models which have generated... What's a model, by the way? Just, just so <laughs> you know, we, have a, we have a picture in mind. Um, it's an algorithm trained on historical data. So once you've fed... Still no picture. <laughs> once you've fed, fed your, your dogs and your cats into this algorithm that t can tell a difference, after you've done that, you call the algorithm, it's a trained model. Because it's ready now to feed a new picture in and make a prediction. And so that's what I call a model. It's this, this algorithm that has been trained on data. So um, I've built a lot of models which have generated precisely zero value for my customers because um, because they died a death of PowerPoint. So PowerPoint is a very popular tool. Um, and for a good reason, I'm not knocking PowerPoint. Um, but what PowerPoint does is it gives you a snapshot of how things are at this present moment. What it doesn't do is it doesn't tell you how things are going to be in the future. It's static. Um, and if you present your model that way, it generates value for your customers at that point in time, probably, but it doesn't help them going forward. So what you really need is you need a tool, like a piece of software, which is um, always in front of your customers and always advising them and telling them what the best thing is to do. Same as when you look at your applications on your phone, every time you open Facebook, you see a new ad. And so I think um, where this is where a lot of um, endeavours in data science and predictive analytics tend to fall down, is not enough thought is given to how is this going to work going forward? How is this going to be live all the time? How, how is this going to constantly drive decisions within our organization? And so putting models in production means to embed that model as a piece of software into software that's used within your organization. So it's always in front of people who are making decisions and it's always helping them make that decision in real time. Mm. So making it actionable, but really kind of... Uh, making it actionable always, yeah. not just as a one-off. Yeah. Ellie, we are coming close to the end of our session, and um, I like to finish with two questions. One is the political aspects of what we talked about, and the second is your advice to a particular group. But the political thing I'd like to, to do a little bit differently this time, because my impression is that we still lack a lot of good modeling and good insights when it comes to big political questions. You know, we do it very old fashioned. Somebody calls you, asks you a question and, you know, I'm not really sure how big the data set really is and how possible it is to understand the society based on how we gather data about it and then use that data to manage. Do you have any, any ideas on how we can improve that? I mean, how can, you know, 
um, what shall I say, big data be useful for predicting and managing a whole country in, 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 in the right directions? How can this be cross-connected with politics? I think it comes down to the same principles that we've already discussed. Um, at the end of a day, the questions that you face when looking at artificial intelligence are no different to the questions which we already face as a society. I mean, if you're a, you know, making decisions as a country, you're saying things like, where should we build a new road? Should we build a new road? Um, should we invest in X, Y, or Z? Those questions are not changing. Those questions are the same. What is different is um, that you have more information with which to make a better decision. But the decisions that are being made and the questions which are being answered are, are still the same. And I think the mechanism for that should be what it's always been, is people you know, um, a large group of stakeholders getting together and using the old-fashioned um, communication protocol of talking to each other to say, what questions do we want to answer? What is different is um, we now have the means to make more informed uh, decisions. So, so start with a question again and, and yeah. don't just run after, because my problem is that in media, it seems that, you know, there are, there are, there are these, um, uh, what are they called? These, these, these questionnaires, you know, that are sent out to many, many omni, omnibuses or, you know, and, and, but they, they seem to be biased already from the get go. Um, I don't know, how, how do you avoid the bias then? So, you mean the bias in... In what, what answer you expect to find? So there are... Or what point you try to prove, politically or otherwise? So to me as a data scientist, um, avoiding bias, that's something that I've been... You know, mathematically avoiding bias is something that uh, I've been working on for very many years. That's what most data scientists are trained to do. So we can... If we can't avoid the bias, we can probably tell you that it exists. Mm. Um, because mathematically there are ways to do that by looking in the data. Um, what we can't do is we can't tell you what questions you should be asking. Mm. Um, we can, you know, if we're specialists in particular industries, we can certainly tell you how other companies are making money, how we've seen things work in the past. But when it comes to the, particularly the public sector, I would say the mechanism of deciding what question should be asked is is the same as, as always. And uh, data scientists are trained to give you as unbiased and accurate response to a question once defined as, uh, as possible. Excellent. So real open-mindedness behind the question is also important behind the, you know, people asking it. Um, Ellie, your, your best advice to companies that want to get better at using big data? Mm. I suspect I know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> I start with the data, not with the question. <laughs> no. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that's kind of an obvious one, really. There's, there's two, actually. Number one is, is uh, I'm kind of embarrassed to say it again, um, uh, start with a well-defined question or a set of questions in order of priority of what you want answered. My, my second piece of advice is think about how you're going to put this model into production on day one. 
don't include it as an afterthought because to avoid the death by PowerPoint, um, that's something that needs to be considered straight away. Is so how... be careful what questions you're asking as well. <laughs> yeah. Um, more, who is going to be consuming this model? You know, is it a captain on a ship that needs to know how much water he should ballast? Or is it an operator on a rig who needs to know whether the equipment is failing? Who is going to be consuming the work that you're doing? And how are they going to in interact and interface with it? Start answering that question straight away rather than after you've built a model. How long does it take to, to you know, come to something productive? How long is a cat's tail? I know, but, you know. Um, can, can it be done in three months? Yes. Wow. Depends on the question, but um, it, it's kind of like an iterative process rather than it's done or it's not done. So, you know, I'm pulling timelines out of the air here, but give me a month, I can build you a model with certain accuracy. Give me two months and I can build you a model with higher accuracy and give me three and I can build you a model with higher accuracy than that. Question is what is good enough, mm. and uh, as a as a business, you should have a good answer to that. Otherwise, your data scientists can can probably go on for years. Yeah, exactly. Ellie, thank you so much for um, teaching us all about um, data science, data lakes, and uh, how we should all start with a question first. <laughs> It was lovely having you here in um, our podcast. And I have to say, it's lovely having you in Norway as well. Thank you very much. Tusen takk for at du hørte på podcasten om De som bygger det nye Norge. For flere episoder og annet innhold, gå in på obforum.no. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.